Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for another recording of Retailistic. So, I, you know, as we look at, you know, kind of back over the past year and, and think about the the role that China's had with regards to the consumer, we continue to see a significant interest by Western brands to sell into the China market. You've got a very healthy consumer. You've got a country that had positive GDP in 2020. And we also have a consumer who's really focused on domestic consumption. There is this idea, too, around discoverability of, of new brands and new products. So marketing and, and how to market and, and how to kind of showcase your products is incredibly important, especially working with you know KOLs, influencers, you know, through live streams. And and the biggest change we've seen, right, is people have had more time at home that where where streams used to be about 60 minutes, maybe 90, that in 2020, we, we'd see those upwards of six hours from a single brand. And, you know, many of the Western companies we we work with have said that, you know, kind of at a minimum, they found that 16 hours of live streaming is needed each week to just kind of keep their brand top of mind for consumers. And, you know, as we think about this, you know, kind of change in some some of the luxury consumption is where it's been the greatest because, you know, when, you know, we've written many of these, these annual outbound Chinese tourist reports, right? Not only in terms of where they're traveling to, but also in terms of how they're spending. And now all of that's being repatriated back to China where, you know, we've always estimated that the Chinese consumer represents about, you know, let's call it two thirds of luxury consumption, about a third done domestically and a third done through through Daigo's and, and, you know, while they're traveling. All of that now is, you know, kind of firmly back in China and talking to whether it's, you know, luxury brands or the different platforms. The the belief is that in 2020, that China represented 70 percent of luxury consumption, which is just off the charts, unheard of. And we're also starting to see, you know, local luxury brands spring up as well as kind of other very hot brands. And so I think there's a lot that that we can learn in the West in terms of how consumption has, you know, continued to evolve. And and even on the food side, right, and supplements. So let's call it more of the kind of um, you know, staples products, there there has been consistent changes in in consumption and also discoverability of new products. My my message here would be that, you know, kind of everything is truly up for grabs, whether it's market share, whether it's, you know, kind of consumer behavior or even how the consumer wants to, to interact with brands. And I believe that as we think about holiday 21 and, you know, from a you know kind of Chinese perspective, I would think about that as it relates to double 11 and, and then also as we kind of move into the you know Western idea of the holiday season. But there is a, an opportunity as well to test your products in the Chinese market, see what's working, and then to really kind of overemphasize that uh, as we look at the the rest of the world. So I I do think that there is an incredibly positive message as we you know kind of look at what happened in the Chinese market in 2020, and especially as we look at that from a predictive purpose for 21. You know our estimate for you know those Western brands selling in China is that they could see upwards of 25% increase in growth year on year. And it's a market where we would absolutely suggest everyone doubles down in terms of investing. We're incredibly excited to have Renee Hartman, one of the founders of China Luxury Advisors here with us today, and uh, also one of the creative minds around C2 as well. So Renee, 
How are you feeling about kind of the the state of the state right now is, you know, we're kind of a year after, if you will, the, uh, you know, the news hit uh, in the U.S. and, you know, kind of at the point where where China had already started to, you know, come out of the, the real crisis. What are we seeing in terms of travel in China? Yeah, I mean it's uh it's it's kind of surreal to look back a year, you know, and see what's what's changed and uh you know China is I think in a very different place from where um you know a lot of countries are around the world, but you know some things are still the same, you know, they're still not able to travel internationally um like a lot of countries these days. Um so they've been doing a lot of domestic travel. So domestic travel has been um really strong. We saw, you know, as of October holiday, you know, things kind of bounce back and we're seeing, you know, some new types of behaviors that mirror um, how people are traveling around the world. So doing things like staycations, um, starting to do more camping and glamping, um, and really kind of, you know, trying to make the most of what they can travel domestically. And, and what, it, what ends up being the impact on malls and movie theaters and, and everything else? So, you know, as, as we would look at as, you know, some of the forms of entertainment that might be more, you know, kind of local. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's funny, you know, it, just looking at China from outside, you know, you you see all your friends kind of in there and they're they're living life pretty normal, I have to say. You know, they're having fashion shows or having, you know, um, big meetings and trade shows um, and everything's kind of back to normal. So they've, they've had a couple of bouts where they've opened, you know, movie theaters and closed them. But for the most part, everything's open. Um, you know, they're going to malls. Um, so life on, you know, day-to-day basis is pretty much returned to normal um, unless there's kind of some small flare-ups um, but even then, you know, they'll, they'll go to like, uh, using the, the health app on WeChat, um, so they can show a green code. Maybe they wear masks from time to time, but even, you know, l- l- kind of largely, um, life is back to normal for them. So it's a kind of an interesting little case study where they're sort of in a bubble. Um, as long as you stay in China, um, life is, is pretty, pretty normal and, and day to day, not so much worried about the, the virus. So we have seen a lot of the kind of um, entertainment and, you know, more of your sort of day-to-day living restaurants, you know, all that kind of stuff has pretty much come back to life in China. The, and what surprised you in terms of, you know, new behaviors or returning to old behaviors, because, you know, as we're now starting to kind of look at this outside of China and as, you know, consumers are being vaccinated, et cetera, I think we're trying to see what's happened there and to then carry forth to the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, I think China's kind of an interesting case study that way because they've, um, you know, been out of it for almost a year. And I think we've seen some behaviors that happen kind of post-COVID have stayed and some have kind of reverted back to normal. So, you know, one of the ones that stayed, I'd say, is really this focus on healthy living. Um, so I think Chinese consumers, when they first, um, you know, kind of came to to deal with COVID, one of the first things they did was really focus on immunity and healthy lifestyle. And I think maybe more so than a lot of countries outside of China um, it was all about what you ate and fresh food and keeping your immune system up. Um, so we've seen a huge increase in fresh food purchases and in particular fresh food delivery. So a lot of the grocery stores um, and, and kind of e-commerce providers providing that really easy fresh food delivery service. Um, we've seen big increase in like organic uh, organic products. You know, even at Starbucks, they're doing Beyond Meat and they're doing Oatly. And you're seeing a lot of these um, kind of, you know, up and coming health fads happening in China as well. Um, and then we've also seen a big increase in fitness and that's something that, you know, during the lockdown, it was all about, you know, getting, uh, home fitness products, but now it's really transformed to, 
and whether it's gyms or whether it's, you know, people going outdoors and doing running races with their friends um, or everything from, you know, Pilates to, you know, hit classes, there's just a huge increase in fitness. And that's something that, you know, China's always been kind of, uh, you know, everyone's been expecting that to happen in China, but this is really happening this time. And people are um, fundamentally changing the way that they're, they're, they're exercising what they're wearing, how they're interacting with friends. And it's uh, pretty interesting to see that. And I think that's something that will last for a while. And then what, what's the social aspect? Or, I mean, right, because so much of, of life in China is lived through, you know, social media. How are you seeing, you know, kind of the, the fitness aspects come through from a social media perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we've saw in the fitness um, area is, you know, definitely people getting more into kind of smart apps and gamification. So, you know, they had one of my favorite stories about China is that people had figured out ways to, uh, they were doing these kind of competitions with their friends about step counters or exercise kind of gamification. And people figured out ways to, you know, move their phone without actually moving so they could like, you know, make all these steps come through. So I think there's a lot of this kind of social aspect of it. Nike's tapped into it also with their, with their running clubs. A lot of people are doing running clubs and outdoors. So I think social is huge. Um, you know, it, it's, it's become kind of a big way that you meet your friends and kind of interact together, whether that's by taking a class together or going for a run, or even, you know, some of the more, um, smart fitness applications and ways you can kind of track each other's progress and keep each other accountable. And, and then, you know, in healthy living, right. If we think about that, do you feel that people are spending more on on supplements and is it about skincare is it about you know kind of where where is this money being spent and and what do you predict as we we look throughout the summer yeah i mean i think definitely um you know we just we actually just did a a, a survey on health products and vitamins and what people are spending money on and i think that you know the health supplements is an area that we're seeing um you know huge increase in that's everything from vitamins to like fish oil calcium um, that was definitely the number one category, and that includes things like immune boosting and just overall kind of health um, supplements and vitamins, which have always been popular in China, um, but we've seen definitely an increase in that. And then I'd say the second one is more, like you said, kind of skincare and uh, cosmetics, you know, healthcare, even things like, um, you know, facial rollers and kind of beauty devices as well. So, you know, certainly an, an emphasis on kind of uh, skin and beauty, um, but also just on just overall health supplements and kind of staying healthy. And and what's your prediction as as you think about, you know, maybe a year from now, how many of these habits will remain sticky? And do you think this is, you know, do we see maybe money moved away from international travel more towards, you know, kind of health and fitness or, you know, what's your prediction? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things that are going to stick. I think, um, you know, we, we saw sort of one of the interesting things that has kind of pers- per, uh, persevered throughout the, the time, you know, ever since March. Um, is this kind of focus on self-care. And I think that's something that we've seen as number one, when people ask how they've changed their behaviors and their lifestyle, that's stayed this way for a whole year. Um, and I think that's that's here to stay. And so self-care can, you know, take take form in a lot of different ways. You know, it could be everything from spending, you know, money on your apartment to make it something that you really enjoy. It could mean, you know, when we ask people where they want to, what kind of things they want to do when they travel, the number one thing they said is they want to go and relax somewhere. You know, they want to hmm. kind of um, you know, enjoy themselves, relax. Um, and after that, it was kind of things like visit places that I've never been, explore new cultures, experience nature. 
so Camping I think it's, you know, sound particularly relaxing to me, Renee. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it depends on your, it depends on your perspective. You know, right now, sounds, laying on a beach sounds pretty nice. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But that being said, I know a lot of people are, you know, daydreaming about where they're going to go and all the stuff they're going to do afterwards. So I think they have, you know, anyone in China kind of has that same pent up demand for international travel, just like everybody else does. And then, you know, I, I've always, you know, right, the data would illustrate that when Chinese travel, they do spend you know, disproportionately on luxury goods with the current, you know, kind of lack of outbound tourism. What does that mean for sales of luxury goods domestically? I mean, I think the sales of luxury goods domestically have benefited from COVID in that sense, and that it's not so easy to go out overseas and you're not traveling all over the place and going to duty free. So I think, you know, the the domestic luxury sales has definitely seen a rise from that and even things like the rise of domestic duty free and they've you know invested a lot in Hainan in particular um, with duty free and that's kind of changing the landscape um, we have seen you know but what has stayed is we are seeing consumers kind of more hungry for this cross-border e-commerce um, so we're seeing you know companies like Senrive and Everlane like some of these D2C brands that are going into the market um, via cross-border, the consumer is pretty hungry for those, and they're willing to be to wait for purchases and and have those purchases overseas. Um, and it's because they can't get those products in China, and they're not able to travel anymore. So they're looking to e-commerce, whether that's you know Tmall or WeChat or whether it's a Daigo. Um, people are really hungry for this kind of cross-border e-commerce, and I think that's taking up some of the slack from people who can't travel um, and aren't able to spend as much overseas like they used to. And then you know as as you think about, you know, kind of this consumer set who is used to traveling, purchasing luxury goods, you know, posting their, you know, kind of experiences on moments, what are, you know, how are they spending their time and their money? And are you seeing more in savings? I'm not sure about the savings. I think people are still, you know, people are spending a little bit less when we ask people how much they're spending this year, you know, compared to, to pre-COVID. Um, most people said they're spending about 15% less. Um, and some people, you know, had had larger impacts, you know, on them. But I, I'd say it's a small change. Um, I, I think they're just kind of spending money elsewhere, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, doing things like working on their home, you know, investing in kind of, we, we saw a big interest in um, smart home appliances, for instance. Um, and I think, I think people are still kind of spending their money and just doing it in slightly different ways. Um, you know, it, doing it when they're talking about kind of entertainment, you know, they're doing a lot of uh, like Douyin, you know, TikTok short videos. Um, we're seeing more kind of online entertainment. So I think it's just sort of shifting. Um, although I would say, you know, in general, there's a little bit less spending, but uh, I, I don't think it's as significant as maybe in other countries. That makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, this this idea around, you know, kind of we saw, right, revenge shopping and revenge travel, you know, where where does that sit right now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting. I think the revenge travel in particular is going to come when China's able to start traveling. And I think there's still you know, a lot of uncertainty of when that's going to happen. Um, China just came out and said they weren't going to allow international travel until 2022. Um, that's changing, I think, daily. They're looking at things like the the travel bubbles they had done before with Thailand or, um, you know, even with Hong Kong and different locations. So I think that, um, you know, there, there will be these sort of um, areas that will come back. And I think what's going to come back first is going to be Asia travel for Chinese consumers. Um, you know, things like places like Japan and Korea and Thailand, um, Malaysia, those are going to be a little bit easier to go in the, in the first part. And I think 
you know, the rest of it's really going to depend on what happens with, you know, vaccines and all of the government policies, you know, when China is going to allow people to travel, one of the destination uh, countries going to allow them to travel. And, you know, what are the quarantines that come through that right now? There's a really strict quarantine for getting into China. So if you leave, you know, you come back, you've got two weeks of quarantine coming back. So it, it does kind of make an impact on what people are able to do. But I think as soon as people are allowed to travel, they're going to be you know, very excited to be to be traveling. And that's definitely a lot of pent up demand. So I would expect once it's available, th- there'll be you know a lot of movement for international travel. I mean, it's it's really quite interesting, because if you think about the, you know, the innovation that's happening in China, and now that, you know, maybe maybe people are spending more more time at work, if that's you know even possible. But <laughs> but this focus right on, you know, kind of domestically connecting you know, all of the dots, as especially as it relates to kind of retail and technology, the opportunity to, to leapfrog many of, you know, the approaches we've taken in the West is is significant right now. Absolutely. And I think that's what's so interesting about China. You know, the, when you look at kind of smart retail, I mean, they've had mobile payment, contactless payment years before anybody else even thought about it um, overseas. And just the way that they've been able to kind of do things like facial recognition. So you can you know, purchase a product before you even walk into the store, you walk in, you scan your face, pick up the product and leave, you know, it's a completely frictionless, um, you know, environment and completely frictionless experience. So I think there's a lot that, um, you know, global companies can learn from all of the technology that's happening inside of China, and especially this sort of, you know, omni channel, if you will, or the offline to online, um, it's becoming so, so common and so much part of the experience for people. So I think there is um, you know, whether it's customer service or just kind of having fun and using retail as entertainment, um, I think the most innovative things in the world are happening in China. And, you know, as you you think about kind of the, you know, some of the trends we're seeing from a retail perspective or fashion perspective, you know, what's the most interesting to you right now? I mean, I think what's been kind of interesting is looking at when you look at fashion, you know, just the emergence of a lot of these uh, domestic brands in China and how quickly they're able to adapt to Chinese consumer preferences. So look at an area like streetwear has been a really, you know, that's been a very active segment in China. Um, It's something that has always been growing a lot. And there's been a lot of, you know, we've seen tons of luxury brands go in and do streetwear collaborations and, you know, brands like Supreme and Off-White are extremely popular in China. Um, But at the same time, you've seen a lot of these up and coming kind of local brands, um, Peace Bird, um, Boy London that are these local brands that have tapped into the to kind of what's happening and they're able to move really quickly and they understand the Chinese consumer preferences and even the large companies like Afila who was bought out by Anta um, you know they're they're designing all of their product locally so I think this kind of you know there's more and more of a focus on the local Chinese consumer preferences and and the design and the aesthetic is really changing so it's not just a one you know, one size fits all and one style fits all. And you can just do that globally. It's really, you know, looking at your local team in China to do a lot of that design um, on the ground and really kind of changing and adapting to this quick changing consumer and, and their local preferences. So, Renee, what did we learn from International Women's Day this year on, on March 8th? And, you know, from that, maybe we can talk about some of the learnings for retailers as we think about 618 and 011. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think that um, Women's Day is a is a huge holiday in China. Um, you know, the fun part is actually if you are a woman who works there, you're supposed to get half the day off. So Mao had said, you know, women hold up half the sky, and so women get half the day off on Women's Day. So that's always even a fun one while you're working I, there. I can't wait till we bring Women's Day to the U.S. <laughs> I know, we really need it. <laughs> 
Um, you know, but in addition to that, it's really turned into kind of a major holiday um, for, you know, brands in China. So I think what's what's interesting is, um, you know, we talk about things like Singles Day and all these festivals in China. There's a lot of them. Um, but there's, a, you know, but in addition to Singles Day, there's all these kind of new up and coming festivals that have really become major marketing moments and major product initiative moments for brands in China. So you have things like 618, which is June 18th, which is kind of the the complement to 1111. You have um, Qi Xi, which is uh, Chinese Valentine's Day in August, and you have Women's Day. Um, and brands are not just doing, you know, it's not a matter of just, you know, putting out a post about Women's Day and maybe doing a discount. You know, they're doing product drops, they're doing collaborations, they're doing major marketing campaigns around these holidays. And it's something that I think brands really need to think through the the season and these holidays in China and plan, you know, real interesting marketing campaigns, product drops, um, collaborations, you know, unique types of um, partnerships that they can do and, and really stand out from the crowd because everybody is taking advantage of these holidays. And you, as a brand, you really need to do something different and impactful. What have you found to be some of the most successful approaches to some of these holidays? I, I mean, I think what's been interesting to see, you know, we saw, for instance, in um, Singles Day the, this last year, Dior did a special product drop um, just for Singles Day. And I think that we've seen um, these types of, uh, you know, product drops and collaborations, I think, are probably one of the most important things people can do. Um, and then second, of course, is live streaming. Live streaming is, you know, the huge thing that's been driving a lot of these sales during 11-11, um, during 618. And then the question becomes with live streaming, you know, how do you A, find the right talent, and then B, do something interesting that's more than just, you know, product demonstration, make it, you know, entertainment for people, make it fun, make it interactive, and make it feel like people can't afford to not buy the product that you have out there and they have a limited time. So, you know, having these, the combination of kind of a, a limited edition plus a live stream is kind of, you know, I think a golden, uh, golden tie up there. And, you know, what is your prediction around live streaming right now in terms of what we've seen and what you think we will see? I mean, I think what's been live streaming to date, I think China has been, you know, well in advance of everywhere, you know, around the world. So I think what's been really interesting is these live streams in China, they're long, they're very in-depth, um, they ask a ton of, you know, people ask a lot of questions, they've got these sort of, you know, quote-unquote live stream celebrities that can basically, you know, sell out $20 million of product in, in minutes. Um, so I think that that's been kind of where it's come from is this, you know, um, pretty, you know, interesting way of selling, um, you know, for people in the West, maybe it's closer to, you know, something like, uh, like, you know, online, like shopping TV, uh, what's the name of that company? <laughs> Thank you. Um, and, uh, so it's more like that approach. And, um, you know, I think what's going to happen is it's going to get even more into entertainment. So I think that we're going to be seeing, um, more engagement, um, more ways to kind of up the production value and make it more like, um, you know, watching TV and more like entertainment. So I think this kind of, uh, you know, the ability to really sell product and then combine it with an engaging experience um, is something that I think is going to really be changing. And and what have you seen in terms of, right, just the, the duration of the streams? I mean, you know, we're, we're still really, at, you know, from an infancy perspective here in the U.S., what are you expecting on the other side? In terms of how long the streams would be, mm -hmm. I mean they're they're pretty long in China. I mean we're seeing several hours sometimes for for streams. Um, so I think that you know we probably will continue to see that kind of you know in depth uh, programming. But I think what they'll happen is they're going to have these kind of key times when people can come in and come out. You know, so there'll be these you know key moments. And I think that's something that 
know, as we look globally and see how people have to adapt live streaming, um, that that's going to change probably for every market. And then, you know, how you're doing the live stream itself. Do you expect people to be staying on the entire time? Do you expect them to be coming in and, you know, certain, certain pieces of it? Um, we're actually doing some research right now, just trying to find out why do people not buy when they come onto a live stream? Why do they leave? How long do they spend? And I think really kind of digging into the consumer behavior and how they're interacting with the live stream will help tell you know, how, how brands and retailers can really craft their own live streams to, to make sure that they're maximizing their success. And, you know, as we think about coming, once again, coming um, off of 3.8, did we see anything from a live stream perspective that was unexpected or interesting or, you know, what did we learn? I mean, I think it, it goes back again to the, you know, what's really driving the success of the live streams in China is the personalities. So I think you're seeing you know, some of these personalities like the Austin Lee, who's, you know, the, the lipstick guru of China, they're just able to drive so much sales. So I think that, you know, brands are having to be really selective about who they work with. And then, you know, they have to stand out. So there's only so many brands Austin Lee can promote at one time. So, you know, finding these new types of influencers and K-Wells that maybe are not quite as large, maybe not as big as him, but are able to really connect with the consumer and kind of have this, you know, really um, trusted fan base. I think people are going to have to kind of diversify their strategy a little bit and try to find new personalities that can really connect with people. And and what are you seeing in terms of just right from a KOL perspective and KOC perspective? Right, how are things you know continuing to evolve? Yeah, I mean, I think KOLs and KOCs are kind of more important than ever in China. Um, and you know, we're there's there's everything from kind of you know young up and coming celebrities. Um, to some of these, you know, KOLs like a Mr. Bags who can, you know, is essentially a celebrity in his own right, where any any bag he works with, you know, will sell out in minutes. So I think these these KOLs and KOCs are more important than ever. Um, and I think the brands have to have that as kind of a lead part of their strategy to really have that third party authentication um, and just to introduce your brand and make it relevant. Um, that being said, I think KOCs provide a lot of impact from an ROI standpoint. KOLs are expensive. Um, they work with a lot of brands. So I think kind of having a mix of, you know, a couple KOLs that can really elevate your brand, but the KOCs can really drive purchases and can really drive that loyalty because they're a, a little bit easier to work with and cheaper, but they have this, this group of fans who just really trust them and believes them. Um, so they have that kind of sticky fan base, you know, albeit smaller. So what, I mean, Renee, what do we see when one of these KOLs works with a brand, right? What's the potential? And, you know, I always get the question, right? How much do, you know, these KOLs cost? Yeah, I mean, there's a, the cost ranges, you know, widely, you know, you're anywhere from, you know, a couple hundred dollars to, you know, up to 500,000 to a million dollars for some of these KOLs. So, you know, someone on the high end, like a Mr. Bags, you know, he's charging, you know, anywhere north of 500,000, if if not more, um, you know, he's rep by CAA, it's basically like working with a celebrity. Um, but I think if brands can find these, you know, up and coming um, KOLs that are kind of maybe called the micro influencers at first, you know, Mr. Bags back in the day, we used to work with him, you know, six or seven years ago, and he was a student. Um, and he, you know, had come come up with kind of a, you know, unique way of looking at bags as an investment rather than a fashion accessory. Um, and he was just able to build this really loyal following and people really believe him and, and loved what he said. So I think if you can find these people early on, um, you know, grow with the next Mr. Bags, you know, not, it, of course, you know, if, if you can work with them, that's great. But there are a lot of these other ones who are up and coming. And it's like finding that right KOL that meshes with your brand, and then also has a really strong um, point of view with their audience that makes their audience really loyal to them. You know, some of the things I think that we've seen that have been interesting is, you know, either during the stream or pre or post, you know, kind of digging a bit more into this, this KOLs, you know, kind of 
offstage, if you will, personality. So just kind of giving it a bit more context. Mm. And and that's been, I think, something that we found to be very interesting, just a interesting communication angle. And then on the other side, you know, this this idea of like rewarding fans or, you know, kind of creating a social calendar based on, you know, kind of what's important to the celebrity or the KOL. It's been really interesting in terms of some of what we've seen. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many different ways to work with KOLs. You know, I think, um, you know, one strategy I've seen people do is, you know, first start with seeding product to them, right? So you seed product to them and, you know, you don't have a lot of control of what they're going to say. Maybe they include you in an unboxing video. Maybe they mention you, maybe they post about you, but, you know, it won't be like a hard sell. It'd be very soft. But from that, you know, what we often find is I think some of the influencers might really respond to a brand. And I think the influencers... One of the things that's great for brands that are new to China, um, you know, one of the the things that influencers want is they want to introduce new brands to their their fan base and their audience. They want to be seen as the one who's showing them new things. So if you can kind of connect with the influencer and build, you know, kind of a a relationship and also make sure they really love your product, you know, and if you can have somebody who actually does like your product and who wants to work with you, um, a lot of times they're willing to do more and it's going to come across as more authentic than somebody who's, you know, working with a new brand every day and it's just one of many. No, that, that is actually a really interesting point. And, you know, what are you seeing in terms of, you know, the the relationships between the, the West and the East with regards to marketing teams and merchandising teams? And are you finding that Western brands are, are giving, you know, the teams in China more control, if you will? I think it's really, um, I think this is kind of one of the key challenges for multinational brands working in China. So I think this is kind of always... Um, you know, the root of some level of conflict to a certain extent, you know, because I think the the China team, you know, obviously understands the local market. There are a lot of local market nuances, whether that's design to marketing to the way you do branding. Um, it's different, you know, and then on the global side, they want to make sure that there's brand consistency. They want to make sure that the brand's being presented, you know, across markets in a way that that is true to the brand and is authentic. And sometimes, you know, when they look at what's happening in China, they they can't decide how far do I go? You know, does it does, is this too far from a brand for me to go? Or is this the right thing to do from a localization standpoint? So I think these kind of, you know, they're not always easy decisions. And sometimes it's case by case. And, and really kind of building that trust and understanding between the two teams is really important. And that can be hard. You know, people haven't been able to travel to China in what, you know, 15 months now. Um, you know, they're, you know, you're working across time zones, sometimes difficult to be doing calls, you know, so it can be quite challenging to really build that um, relationship up and just kind of have a, a, a framework for how you make those decisions. So I think that's really challenging. And I think that, you know, finding that balance um, is really hard because the, the consumer, especially even now, you know, a year of not traveling overseas, um, it is a very local consumer and it, and it has, um, you know, there are these nuances that have come up that you do need to be fast as a brand to be able to catch up with what's happening um, or you will miss out. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. All right. So as we we wrap this up, uh, this this fast paced, you know, kind of around the world, <laughs> in, uh, you know, 30 minutes. What um, it, what are your predictions for this year and, and what do Western brands need to know? Yeah, I mean, I think China's going to have a strong year. You know, the economy's bouncing back. Um, they've really been able to kind of, you know, they've controlled COVID, you know, in terms of case rates is, is you know, we're talking like, you know, small percentages of what it's been ever, everywhere else. So I think they're going to have a really strong year. I think for brands that are in the market, you know, it's really about um, refining your strategy and making sure you're not just doing the same old, same old and really adapting and changing quickly. And then for brands that are new to the market, um, I think there's a lot of great opportunities. You know, the cross-border e-commerce, which I mentioned before, 
allows people to enter the market without a China entity, without a China team, without a trademark. You know, you're able to kind of jumpstart a lot faster uh, than you used to be. So you're able to test the market, see what works, make some changes, and then you can you plan a, like a longer entry after that. So we've seen brands like Everlane that I mentioned, you know, they, they've done a year in Tmall. They've done extremely well, you know, and they'll continue to kind of expand and enter the market, you know. So I think it provides kind of a, you know, an early stage testing playground for people that didn't exist before. So I'd, I'd encourage brands to take advantage of that and, and you know, see if you can tap into the growth for the year. That's great. Well, you heard it here first, Renee, you're amazing as always filled with insights. Thanks so much for joining us for this recording of Retailistic. And we look forward to having you on one of our future podcasts. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. So that's it for this week. If you like what you hear, please like and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Thanks so much.